podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Barbless Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Alderson. I've got Nick Hanna in the room with me. So today, we've got for you guys Trisha Parker Hamelberg and Jim Smith. Uh, Trisha is a fish biologist and habitat restoration coordinator at the USFWS's Andronomous Fish Restoration. Did I say it Anadromous. right? Every time. <laughs> uh, this, is, this, this would be, I don't know what episode we're going to call this one, but I cannot say anadromous very well. Don't read it. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> anyway, she's at the AFRP. Uh, for the in northern Sacramento River, um, Jim is also a fish biologist and, and the office's long-term project manager. Thanks for coming, guys. Our, our predation guy, right? Is that what you said? Yes, <laughs> I'm all about eating fish. Predation yes. specialist, I like it. And that that. So, how are you guys doing? First of all, thanks for coming. Yeah, in. thank you guys for coming in. I know Appreciate you, it. you drove a while, a while to get here. Oh, thank you. Yeah, doing well. We're doing well, except it's not raining again. We need more rain, huh? Mm-hmm. Fish need- like fish need water, and we yep. like it when it rains. Definitely, they do. <laughs> and last time get- I heard, we've been getting some <laughs> rain, but it, it's warm rain too, which Ooh, isn't yeah. good. We need some snowpack built up on our mm-hmm. on our mountains. Yeah, definitely. So the the first question we always ask Nick, what is that question we always ask? Have you guys been fishing lately? No. Well, does Catching abalone count as fishing? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Do you have to get that. Do you have to get a license to do that? Yes, you have to get a yeah. license. And, yeah. and so they're go, getting a lot. And I, I do have a picture of me somewhere with a bonefish. So that, oh, that cool. counts, cool. right? I, I caught one bonefish in my life in the Bahamas. So Where did you go after abalone? Oh, the North Coast. I, it's a secret spot. I know enough about fishing to know you don't give away your secret spots. I had, somebody had told me that they're shutting down the, the uh, abalone for a bit. Is that true? That's what I've read. That's what I've read. Yeah, for Mendocino, is it Mendocino County or something? Mm-hmm. There's problems with the kelp forests. The kelp forests are much smaller than usual. Hmm. And it's pretty concerning. I, I imagine it all has to do with ocean temperatures. Yeah. So on the, when you were in the North Coast um, secret spot, did, did you notice there were quite fewer less abalone? Or did you notice? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Poaching has been a big issue with that fishery for a long time. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's still, they're cracking down on it, but I think it's it's going to be an issue moving forward. Yeah. Growing up as a kid in Alaska, I did a lot more fishing. I spent a lot of time out on little boats catching salmon and crab. And looking back on it and reali- learning about all the safety that we take 
all the safety precautions we take now at our office, I realize. Uh, I'm really, really glad I'm still alive. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, I don't think there were any life preservers in that little boat that we were taking out. Well, as yeah. a fisherman, I, I always think about, you know, me in a wetsuit being just a big popper out there in the ocean and that I'm just, I look like a piece of bait swimming on the surface, you know, and something's going to, something's going to come. Yeah. We, I'm from this, this small town called Princeton, which is about a half hour mm-hmm. south of Chico. And when I was a kid, we would, we, the, the families would go to um, like Green Acres or something is basically in Fort Bragg and they would do abalone. Right. Right. So I'm like 10 years old and you've heard this story before, but I'll tell it because it's relevant to where this conversation is going for a second. Um, so basically I go abalone for the first time. Can't swim that well at 10. I didn't learn how to swim until I was eight. So I'd basically just been swimming two years and, um, I've got the wetsuit on. I'm kind of freaked out and we start, you know, tugging out to the spot where we're going to go. And one of the guys um, that got in the boat, he like put his hand on the side of the boat and he punctured his hand, right? So he's got this little quarter, half inch gouge in his hand. He's he's bleeding, and I'm, you know, heading out to the spot. <laughs> he's bleeding on the boat, and I'm like, uh, your 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 hand's bleeding. What right? could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and the, you know, we where I grew up, we're all you know, we're country dudes, and, and everything's you know whatever. And he's he kind of like laughs and he and he put it on my on my leg. He just smeared the blood on my leg and then we just all got in the water. <laughs> and I'm like, so I'm totally freaked out. And um, I haven't been at abalone since. Oh man, yeah, traumatic. Yeah, yeah I lived through it, but it wasn't fun. Good well, to eat. We we taught our our son how to do it, and that worked even better. He's a student now at Chico State. But, oh, that's good. But it's perfect because he doesn't feel the cold. Yeah, and you just and outsource that to him. Yeah, and perfect. I bought up many licenses for many years where he was, you know, learning how to how to catch abalone, and now he's really good at it. Does he doesn't get cold? So hmm. I sit on top topside in the kayak and offer him water if he's thirsty, and it's perfect. And he does the hunting. Well, Tricia, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us uh, how you, how you came to Northern California and what got you into this industry. Hmm. Well, Jim's heard the story a couple times, so. That's okay. I grew up in I grew up in Northern California, but in the Bay Area, the southern tip of Northern California in mm-hmm. the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and then spent a lot of time out at Point Reyes National Seashore, and and then summers in Alaska and Kodiak Island, and that's Very probably cool. got me to be a fish pilot. Mm, I, I said, bet that would pe- ruin anybody, huh? There's people who can work and be outdoors and catch salmon <laughs> and go on boats. This and then and worked. Did my undergrad at Davis and masters at Humboldt, and worked for a while in the Klamath River watershed, and and learned about all the diverse interest groups that really have a strong say in what should be done to balance or try to balance the use of the salmon and the use of the water. Mm-hmm. Just for you know, some of our listeners um, that may not be aware of all the different players that are typically in a watershed, the interests that you, you spoke of, who, who would those be just off the top of your head? Right. Well, if the Klamath River watershed, it was the counties that, mm-hmm. the, that the watershed encompasses, Siskiyou County, Trinity County, Del Norte, and Humboldt counties. Mm-hmm. And then also the Native American tribes, the Yurok, Karuk, mm-hmm. and Hoopa, Hoopa. Yeah. In Native American nice. tribes. And yeah. then going up into Oregon, it was also the Klamath tribe, so the state of Oregon and state of California. And wow. those are some a lot of stakeholders. And then we also had stakeholders from the agricultural industry mm-hmm. 
and stakeholders from sport fishing, in-river sport fishing, ocean sport fishing, ocean ocean commercial harvest. And then the fish. And then the fish. And then <laughs> and then some stakeholders who are adamant that the fish should be enjoyed for being fished. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's there's a value in that. Did where it's a, it's a pretty diverse group of interests, right? And sometimes with polar opposite, uh, let's say, motivations. Um, did you guys find any common ground, or were you able to find common ground? And if you did, what what tended to be the topics, or what was a the kind of you know glue that bound people together, even though they may have had diametrically opposed opinions? It feels like economics is usually a glue that people all have as an underlying interest. Mm-hmm is the economics that does that may that does doesn't always fit together to help support the fish mm-hmm. when one part of the economics is ocean commercial catch and harvest and the other part could be making sure these these highly migratory fish can can make it to their spawning grounds in the upper part of the watershed and that there's enough water up there for the fish so I'm not quite sure how to answer that one in terms of what are people interested in that they could all find common ground on. Because you're right, common ground is really important. Mm-hmm. And we, I work with that with the partners now. We're trying to trying to work on these local watersheds and deer and mill creeks. And what's mm-hmm. the most important piece that we can use is Which we're going to be talking about ground. In a, a little bit later. Water is common to all of those. I was those just going to say things, that. Water. But, yeah. but, but some people want to use the water and some people want the water to stay in the streams. So, mm-hmm. But water is the common ground. And will be for the foreseeable future. Right, big issue. Flow, flows are really important, and right now, coming off a few years of drought, you know, last year was a big winter. It was fun. <laughs> right. It was a fun big winter, but the four years before that were really low water years, and and that's reflected in the low numbers of of spring chinook salmon that we saw in the tributaries this year. Mm-hmm. Jim, how about your background before we? Because we're going to dive into these some of these topics okay. in in a bit, but I want to give the listeners a high level of where you're coming from. Well, I've been in the valley here, Red Bluff, since 1983, uh, working with salmon and steelhead, uh, both on a uh, population basis as well as a habitat restoration. Mm -hmm. So um, it's interesting, you know, I've been here since that time. My job has not, is not the same. We have done a lot of different things at the office. Uh, We grew, our office started with about three or four people when I first started there. And now, as of last count, we have 39 people. We primarily look at, we're primarily doing a lot of study work, um, doing uh, population estimates. Uh, We do habitat restoration on Battle Creek, Clear Creek, Mill Creek, Deer Creek. Um, Antelope Creek? Not so much Antelope Creek, although we have our fingers in there. Mm -hmm. Um, I I could talk about Antelope Creek in my own mind, but state kind of is taking the lead there primarily associated with some water diverters there. Mm. Um, but those other creeks we've been involved with for a number of years. And so Antelope Creek, not so much. Right. Um, but our office has been working uh, on salmon and steelhead ever since that time. It, particularly in Clear Creek, we've taken a, since uh, about 92 or 93, we've been really involved with restoring the habitat as well as populations there. Hmm. Um, my role has been, has changed over time. I'm now the office uh, manager. I like to think of myself more as a project leader. I have great people working for me. Trisha's one of them. 
I've had people that have been working for me uh, 20 plus years. And so wow. we've got a really good staff that knows the area, knows their work, knows the, the salmon and steelhead populations and how well they're doing in some years and how well they're not doing in other years. And we like to think sometimes we know what we can do to help them out. Um, and we try to do that as best we can. Very cool. And your answer to the question, have you been fishing lately? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was my next <laughs> All right. I was trying to avoid that, but um, I used to fish a lot, a great deal, um, but not so much anymore. Where did you, what did you favor? What did you like to chase or fish for? Uh, interesting, uh, bass out of Shasta. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did a lot of that. Um, it's kind of like a busman's holiday. I worked with salmon and steelhead every day, <laughs> so I'm looking for something a little different. also made several trips to uh, Mexico fishing for the blue water fish. Yeah. But uh, last few years, my passion has kind of changed a little bit. Um, I'm going to go back to it once I retire. Now that I'll have more time. So my Great. passion went to running. I do a lot of running. Oh, that's cool. Uh, marathons, ultra marathons. But now I have hip issues, so I don't do that so much. But I still like to go fishing. I still have a boat that I haven't in my garage that I haven't had a chance to use in a while. But wife keeps telling me to get <laughs> sell rid of it. it and I sell say it or no. fish. <laughs> <laughs> So I still have the passion there. I want to go back to fishing. I grew up with it. That's how I got into this business because I was fishing as a kid. So I was wondering, what are those fish doing? How do they, you know, what makes them do what they do? And that's what got me involved wow. way back then. Very cool. Well, thank you in advance for doing everything you do to help these fish populations thrive. Appreciate we try. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it can be tough just going back to what we were just saying on every, mm -hmm. all the interest involved. You know, it can be tough just to get some things done, but we thank you. Fish and Wildlife Service is pretty interesting, too, is that for us, um, we work, uh, we try to get partners. Mm -hmm. uh, Fish and Wildlife Service doesn't have a regulatory hammer to use. Uh, we use um, our knowledge, our understanding, and the ability to build partnerships, and that's what Tricia has done uh, since her time here is building partnerships so we can get work done. Private land, uh, she works a lot on private land, which is, is a lot uh, harder to do than on the main stem Sacramento River or in a place that has a lot of public land. Mm. She's been very good about getting those partnerships going. That's great. That's basically tribs, right? All the tributaries involved. That's exactly right. right. Well, I mean, what's the biggest challenge? Is it just the the fact that it's private? It's privately owned? or? Well, if you think about it, let's see. We've got a couple things that are worth reviewing here because Jim and I both work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Mm -hmm. So that's federal. We're a nationwide agency. Mm -hmm. Here in California, we work closely with our partners, California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Mm -hmm. And on Deer and Mill Creeks, I work closely with Matt Johnson and Trisha Bratcher and Jason Roberts. And and they are we're all trying to, to work with a public resource, the water that's in the waterways, like mm -hmm. the Sacramento River and in the big tributaries, when that public resource flows across private land in Deer and Mill Creeks. On Clear Creek and some of the other creeks that are kind of famous these days, Clear Creek has a lot of public ownership land. So, But private land, like my, my 12 acres of land in Red Bluff, I don't want Tom, Dick, and Harry, and a bunch yeah, of yeah, yeah. bunch of people I don't know walking across my land and sure. stepping on my flowers, or you know, bothering the quail that live there. So, I can understand private landowners. I can understand if, if just if people live in town and have a little yard, you don't mm -hmm. want somebody coming in onto your property. So I can understand that, but it's hard to understand that if your land includes a, 
a stream that is the only habitat for a highly migratory fish species, that water is a public resource. And that that animal living in that water is a public... It's just passing through. Right, it's just passing through. That's its house. You know, we... We biologists know that habitats are really important for the for the animals we try to care for, and and as all of us know, as we all we all as human beings, we need a house or our habitat. So in in this case, the the salmon and steelhead, their habitat is the stream, the ocean for a couple of years, and also the streams where they where these salmon and steelhead return to, as part of their anadromous life cycle. The the, mm-hmm. juve, the babies the eggs hatch in the in the gravel in the streams like in the headwaters of Deer and Mill Creek and then migrate downstream out to the ocean out the Sac River and out to the ocean mm-hmm. and come back a couple of years later so their habitat is a great variety of habitats actually a long journey that they have to make longer than most right, right? very transitory correct yeah. yes so when the these um, these private owners they see you guys coming I'm sure that their knee jerk is you know, the knee-jerk question is how much is this going to cost me? Is there a lot of anxiety around a perception of it costing money for you guys to be there or, or there's going to be some habitat stuff that they're going to be on the hook to to do? Or Well, like, like Jim said, we, we're, we're not regulatory right. with anadromous salmon and steelhead. We are, our agency's regulatory with other creatures, mm-hmm. but not anadromous salmon and steelhead. NOAA Fisheries is the regulatory entity agency and california department of fish and wildlife so we look to our partner agencies to work on to work on the regulatory part of it so so the private landowners who live next to the streams Mm -hmm. who might be diverting water for agricultural purposes um know that they can work with our agency as a partnership to help them get some money to match perhaps their private money or their private um, services in kind and then we also partner with state money to try to work together oh, okay. to so you'll pair them with subsidized whatever to yeah. help them with it if, if there's a project that requires any habitat restoration and or mm-hmm. whatnot yeah. right our focus particularly okay. in these creeks has been fish passage lately right okay and and so this this podcast all began with with interest in the in the Lower Dirt Creek Falls right. fish ladder being right. rebuilt. Yep. I just one day randomly hiked into it, and I was oh. like, whoa, there's all this stuff going on, and there's a helicopter flying in these massive, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. what are you, the gates or whatever. Um, it was a major project, and, and I just so happened to meet a guy down there that was working. I think his name was Rory at the time, and right. he uh, he was pretty pretty transparent about what was going on and, and why it was happening and from what he knew. And it was just cool to see, you know. Right. And there were, I saw some salmon down there, and that was nice. That's pretty neat. To see. Yeah. Pretty neat. So, so working up from that, Myers yeah. works for, uh, um, Rory works for Myers Earthwork, who works for Na- Northwest Hydraulic co- Engineering Firm. And I contract or have an agreement with them to f- take out the old fish ladder that was mm-hmm. built in the 1940s and replace it with a new fish ladder. And the funding for that was partially from California Department of Fish and Wildlife and partially from the federal government to help replace an old fish ladder that was built in the 1940s that wasn't functioning anymore and so needed to be rebuilt. Yeah, and the issue was the passage above that was... was not, it wasn't happening or it was barely happening. Right, because there was right. about five miles of stream habitat upstream of that mm-hmm. 
old fish ladder that in the before lower falls or upper falls correct is that because the river took a turn and then the ladder wasn't being used efficiently is was that the reason was that the main reason or fish ladders age over time and they're concrete which breaks over time and the fish ladder technology back in the 1940s when that was constructed was the best they could do at the time kind of like dams around california yeah Yeah. (laughs) and like a lot of things 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 that people make yeah, it where things wear out. So, so but but the reason that fish ladder was originally put in was you know, think back to the 1940s Shasta Dam was being constructed and some fish biologists were very they there's put their thinking caps on and they mm-hmm. said, "Well, where where else can we look around the Central Valley and the streams, the tributaries to the Sacramento River? Where can we do some good for fish to make up for the 200 miles of, mm-hmm. of habitat that will be lost when Shasta so Dam's constructed. They were constructed. just trying to offset impact, yeah, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. So so that's why that okay. fit. And it took quite a bit of planning, years of planning, years of planning and searching for the funding to get the go to do that project, which started in July of 2016 and completed in November of 2017. So you guys just... The, the original concept to build that ladder started in this in 2016 and now it's com- totally complete or was did it take because that's incredibly fast no 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 that, oh, okay. the actual the actual implementation groundbreaking started right. in okay July, so how, how long did the entire you know whoever thought whoever said okay hey we're gonna I've got an idea to put a fish ladder in on Deer Creek how long does that process take that was probably identified it was identified to be that the 1940s fish ladder should mm-hmm. be replaced probably in 1997 when the AFRP plan was written. Okay. And then after that, every couple of years, that, that action, that, that fish ladder needs to be replaced mm-hmm. and upgraded, um, continued to be on the, on the horizon as so knowing that we needed to do it. And so we got the designs finalized. Finally, you know, the designs yeah. took quite a bit of work to get the designs. In so place. the inner workings of your guys' agency is basically um, a project comes in, it called an action. Uh, it sounds like, yeah. and it goes into a queue, and then you got it, it gets voted on, and then moves through. It kind of, you know, let, okay. let, let me start yeah, with because yeah. a lot of people don't have insight into this, yeah. and me being one, and I would really love to know how that process works. There's a a, a lot of it has to do with priorities, and in particular in a particular time and a place. Lower Deer Creek Falls, as you know, is fairly far up in the watershed, Mm -hmm. and there is still actually a lot of habitat for spawning and holding below there. Mm -hmm. What has been happening... So, you know, it it really wasn't on a lot of people's radar screen because, you know, it was way up there, Mm -hmm. fish still had habitat, and so it kind of sat in the queue not having a really high priority because even though it needed to be fixed, you still had plenty of habitat for the existing populations. Uh, we all know that the drought comes along and that water temperature is warmer. And so this became a higher priority to get those fish up into that colder water. Because they, they need to move up in the they, system. They need to move up to the system. To get away from that heat. Okay. That's right. Okay. So so some of these have to do with priorities. Okay. And when something gets in the queue, we have a long list of projects and you don't have enough money mm-hmm. to do everything. And so there are priorities. And fish passage is one of them now. We're starting to see a lot of aging fish ladders up and down the valley that have been around for 30, 40 years, and those are becoming, and if you don't get those fish up past the valley floor, they're not gonna make it. So that that has been a changing priority over the last, say, 15 years, but you know, the ladders used to work, and now they don't work so well. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, it, it, I'm 
it, it kind of depends on the time frame and there's and the priorities and the queue uh, gets reset very often. And is there like a committee that votes on these priorities or is it just one or two people or how does that work? It's not like a grant program where you might have a particular uh, set of criteria. And if you meet those criteria, then you're going to get the money. It's more like um, a cooperative arrangement. And some of these things you have to work over years to get people to agree to them. And, and this is all interdepartment stuff. Yeah, it, it okay. works. You know, you, uh, see, Central Valley Project Improvement Act came around in 1993 and changed the way the valley operates. And that was the Central Valley Project is the Bureau of Reclamations, Shasta Dam, uh, Trinity Dam, all these uh, Red Bluff Diversion Dam. It's part of the, the Bureau's project. And for a lot of years, they didn't care about fish. They didn't have to. It wasn't part of their authorization. Central Valley Project Improvement Act came along and in, and and basically put um, fish restoration, enhancement, protection equal to irrigation. You still had the... Uh, that was in 93? That was in 93. And it also created a fund for that. The top thing for the Central Valley Project is flight control, health and human right. safety. Right, human safety first. Right. First, yeah. but then it put it up there equal to irrigation. So that changed the way. It's the only place you'll find in the country where um, it has the authority. They have the authority and mandate to restore fish. And so that created a fund also to okay. do that. And so that fund, it, it, it funds a whole lot of stuff. And so one, uh, only, uh, one part of it is anadromous fish. It gets water to ducks. Uh, for the duck habitat, mm -hmm. whole lot of things changed in '93. I was around, and they didn't really care about fish. They didn't have to. They didn't have the authority, and that's changed over time. Did the Dunsmuir spill happen around that time? And if so, did that have? Was that kind of? Did that play any kind of a factor in terms of the political fuel needed to affect change like that? Um. No. I, I think they were on different tracks because the Dunsmuir spill. No pun intended. Right. <laughs> oh, different tracks. That's yeah. good, yeah. I didn't even catch that I did that. Uh, the Dunsmuir spill was related to the, the train tracks spill. Right. And, and, and I think the legislation for the Central Valley Project Improvement Act had probably been un, underway for okay. quite some time because okay. I'd heard about it and seen drafts of the legislation while I was still working on the, Prior Klam to. On the Klamath River. Right. And, and then, so as Jim was saying, it was ex ex exciting that that fish were put on this equal par mm -hmm. with irrigation and now we're now we're implementing that in terms of some of this funding that exists is going to fix these fish passage issues on deer and mill creeks and other main tributaries too okay. but today those are I can't the ones believe, I wanted to focus on. I can't on. believe it took that long right? It took I a mean, long time well there was a lot of other good things that occurred during that time and there were a few times that we got pretty close to it some of it's getting the right engineering firm to work with you yeah. to get the work done and have the right players at the table at, at the land where the lower deer creek falls is located is mm -hmm. currently owned by northern california regional land trust that's a little different than what you see on the bench near the waterfall mm -hmm. it has the prior landowner but uh -huh. northern california regional land trust here in chico um John Hunt and, and I, we, we met last week and we're preparing to do an interpretive sign at the site that'll give more of the story about the oh, cool. the new fish ladder. And we're going to 
do the modern thing of putting a QR code on the sign. We mm -hmm. think people can take a picture of that and then go home and learn more about. Yeah, some some new technology there to have have a way for people to get to learn more about what's happening at that one site. We're very excited that Northern California Regional Land Trust was a willing partner for us to do this fish passage work, and that's a key to everything I do at work and everything we can do to take care of fish habitats. When when fish migrate across private land, we we have to work with the partnerships with the landowners. So the Lower Deer Creek Falls project is about River Mile 38. And, and I say this in terms of, I, I like to think geographically in terms of the whole watershed. I brought my, my map I showing the that, whole yeah. watershed. And I know you can't see that on the radio or the podcast. but We can post a photo of it though okay. on the show notes. Okay, there you go. Um, Street Mile, River Mile Zero is where the Deer Creek meets the Sacramento River. Okay, so that 30, was my next So 38 question. miles up is Lower Deer Creek Falls. And, a, and okay. about five miles above that is the Upper Falls. Okay. So between Zero, where, where the confluence of Deer Creek and the Sacramento River, and... Stream Mile 38, where we've fixed the waterfall, hopefully, and fish passage. And there's a, there's two or three other diversions that we need to be focusing on in, over the next couple of years to try to work with those private landowners and private irrigators to get access to the land and then work with engineering teams and construction crews to change the way the irrigation diversion operates so that not only can the adult fish that are migrating upstream get upstream but the juvenile don't fish don't get sucked into those diversions and, right that they're yeah. carefully separated from the water by using a fish screen right and mm. for people who aren't familiar with the fish screen i think of it in terms of um like when you separate spaghetti you, know, you cook spaghetti noodles in water and yeah, then you pour them it. then yeah. you strain it and yeah. and but in a sense of fish you want them to stay in a watered environment when they get separated from the water so so you it's like you strain the water but but you still need water going both directions because you need the water with fish in it going back to the creek downstream of the diversion and you need the water that does not have fish in it going out to the fields to go to irrigation kind of like the gcid canal that has a very specialized fish screen in place right exactly it does now Right it is now, that was a lot of effort, <laughs> right. right? And will that be a similar, like, is that what you guys, the, the goal is, is to have some infrastructure like that on these private areas? Yes. Okay. Yes. So when I was earlier, I was saying it, why it take that long? We, you know, we're putting stripers in the river in the early 1900s. We're building hatcheries. We're doing all these things. It seems like it took forever for us to even start researching, you know, what the counts were, or what was going on. And, and then for, you know, 93 for that to, go into place. I just, I feel like that was a long time, right? In between when there was so much happening in the Valley. For me, again, going back to 93 and, and, or back to 83, when I first started here, two, several things happened. One of them was declining populations, uh, especially the winter run Chinook salmon. Mm -hmm. You can go back and look in the seventies, see outdoor life. They had a wonderful fishing. Now, was uh, there a drought uh, in the late seventies? Uh, not so much a drought. Okay. There, there, that was 76, 77, but it was a two year drought. Boom, done. Declining fish populations associated with two things, red bluff diversion dam going in and the state water project going in when they started taking out a lot more water in that gcid canal gcid had been in there for a long time okay but it had been deteriorating for a long time 
And so that was a big problem. And then when did the rev left diversion dam was put in when? Uh, that was about 67. Okay. Uh, so all around the, the late 60s and early 70s is when we, they started seeing these huge declines in population gotcha. uh, numbers. And that's what, and then such that for winter run particularly, used to have 100,000 fish going by Red Bluff Diversion Dam in those first few years. Mm-hmm. And it dropped down uh, in 60, on 70, they had almost uh, 70,000 fish go by. And by 1994, they had 200 going by. And they had a thousand going by, and that was and and winter run are unique. We could spend a lot of time. I can spend a lot of time talking about winter run Chinook. Why they're it's the only place you find them is in the Sacramento River right. system. Yeah, they, and they, they spawn to... in the middle of summer. Stupid things. It's when it's <laughs> the hottest thing around here, and they're spawning. Well, well they used and to they go got up listed. into the McLeod and the Pit right. and all those upper areas where it was a little bit cooler in those at and, that time. And they got listed under the Endangered Species Act, and it was the first anadromous fish population on the West Coast. And when with, that happened, with that status, yeah, with that status, that change, you ha- the Endangered Species Act required a lot of changes in operations, hmm. and that's what happened in the '93. Uh, that's what happened prior to '93, and a lot of the Central Valley Improvement Act was, you know, was done to improve things for fish because of the declining fish populations, and especially for winter run chinook salmon. Hmm. Wow! So that's that's why things changed around that time. Um, and we've had several droughts since then. We had another drought in the nineties that right. drove things down. That was like four years mm-hmm. and fish came back from it slowly. We actually had 17,000 winter run go by, um, and then drop back down again to where we're at now. Hmm. So kind of the populations are cyclic, but over time, um, they're on a downhill slide again, uh, for reasons that I think we're all aware of warmer water temperatures, lower flows, all of those things. Right. Right. Building on what Jim just mentioned about populations are cyclic you know being being a fish biologist is is tough work because it's not like we can see them and touch them and count them their entire time that they're alive they go out to the ocean and disappear yeah nobody knows and and travel hundreds of miles and Mm -hmm. and as as part of that we only see little portions of their life history Mm -hmm. when the adults come back in the stream and so we count them and then when the juveniles are born and 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 migrate downstream and sometimes we have screw traps if we have funding for the screw traps those big metal cones that float in the tributary Uh, if we if we can count them as juveniles that's great too and then there's then there's all the things that can happen as they migrate down the 80 miles no 200 miles of sacramento river before they get to the delta and then there's all the things that can happen to them once they get to the delta so it it's a it's a hard it's a hard migration route that they have to get through. Now, now that being said, we know that there's, you know, some some species of animals have one or two offspring per year and, and do a lot of parental care on that offspring. Well, salmon and steelhead have thousands of offspring Survival per by year. Survival numbers, yeah. Yeah, and, and part of that is knowing that there'll be a couple that survive. So, so we know that that's part of their life history, but we also know that with the human population in California increasing and the demand for water increasing, that's like that. The demand for water is the is the biggest limiting factor for these for these fish to be able to survive. And and right, there's some predation that occurs, and there's some good things we can do to help with fish passage. But the demand for water and having enough water in the streams and having it be the right temperature to keep those fish alive that's that's really the the most important thing so I, I try to do the part of the work that i have the tools to do and mm-hmm. that right now that's fixing fish passage and 
That's great. Deer Creek and Mill how, Creek. That's um, great. You mentioned temperature a few times. Now, I understand how temperature is controlled on a tailwater. Um, so if we take Keswick, for example, it's got a thermo curtain or something like that, and they Shasta, just released yeah. Yeah, they, they release water at different levels. Temperature control devices. Right. Yeah. But on, you know, watersheds where there's no there's no dam, like how... Well, on Deer and Mill Creek, uh, we need yeah. snowpack. So that's, okay, and so it's just Mother Nature, and this is the cyclical nature of what you guys were talking about. And getting, yes, and Part getting fish related. up as far into the watershed where the water's colder as you can. And that's the fish, fish passage mm-hmm. programs. Right. Okay. Yeah. There's so many... <laughs> I have so I don't know where to start. I just want to bombard you guys with so many questions. I'm like, well, do I want to stay on track with the, well, <laughs> the passages, or do I want to talk about predation? I've got all these things I want to go into right now. Well, yeah, well, well you're well, holding a you're well, hold, stop me because yeah, I'm holding excited. Up a, um, a spring run Chinook salmon current population structure. There's a bunch of red X's. I'm going to assume I those see a mean, picture of Butte Creek. Good. It looks yeah. like Butte Creek salmon. So yeah. can you explain this, so, and then we'll uh, we'll post this on the show notes as well sure this is from the 2014 recovery plan that NOAA fisheries our partner agency mm-hmm. put together and and this this graphic is a is a picture of California and the X's all the all the all the 19 historically there were 19 populations of spring Chinook salmon most of those are represented with big red X's wow. there's now five populations mm-hmm. of spring Chinook the majority salmon. of these X's are on the east basically east side of the river yeah so two of those that are important are in Mill and Deer Creek and um, that's why we're working on fish passage in, in those streams and that's why we have a lot of support from NOAA Fisheries and California Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Bureau of Reclamation to help get us funding to do good things for fish passage on those streams. Now that is being partnered with some of the good work done by um, the State Water Resources Control Board and California Department of Fish and Wildlife trying mm-hmm. to get flows established in those streams so that when the when the st- when the salmon get to the and, and the water gets to the valley floor not all of the water's diverted for agriculture and some is left in streams. So during the right times of year so that the spring Chinook juveniles can get out and the fall Chinook can get out. It's a key part of fish passage. They have to get water to pass these, right. these diversions. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And our agency doesn't control water flows. That's our state partners. Would you say that these fish are um, probably the, the best to adapt to certain environmental conditions more than any other fish that's out there? Oh boy, I don't have a crystal ball. And if you, I mean, um, salmon. Do you guys have numbers as far as Deer Creek and Mill Creek go for the last? Yeah, I have numbers. The salmon and steelhead are amazing creatures, aren't they? You know, they, you know, they lived millions of years ago when when glaciers covered North right. America. They right. they were in the ocean all the time. And, they were here and, before us, and, and they'll be here after and us. And I'm as sure. The, <laughs> as the glaciers receded, the fish went up the streams a little bit and looked for the safest place to lay their eggs. And as the glaciers kept receding. They, they kept migrating farther up. Like, what, what smart just, you guys creatures. just know this because the fossil record you're finding. Yeah, j- just the fossil record. That's crazy. Isn't that awesome? I love that. That's yeah, so cool. It's really neat. But they also, with that migration, they bring in marine-derived nutrients yep. into our watersheds, which is so important. We all know ecosystems are important. Mm-hmm. We can't just be narrow-minded and mm-hmm. look at... 10 feet ahead of us. We have to really look at the whole watershed in pers- in a larger perspective. It's like bringing back the wolves to Yellowstone that exactly. made the streams better, made the ecosystem as a whole better. Exactly. A lot of people and don't like it, but 
Right. Well, so, we'll be tackling that topic in this area soon. So, they're, so they're bringing they're they're, they're bringing uh, marine biomatter into those right. watersheds and then imparting that and all those nutrients that there's more phosphorus and I can't remember what the other one is out in the ocean that they bring back inland. So and when they that, die, that, that then you're serves as they die, fertilization, okay. right? Okay. When those when their body their carcasses, right. Um, those carcasses bring in marine-derived nutrients back okay. to our tributary streams, which then like fertilizer, help basically. the fertilizer, the riparian areas next to the streams, uh, where all the alders and poplars and cottonwood, and you guys do fly fishing. You know right, right, how right. important those trees and bushes are for the aquatic insects mm-hmm. that then feed the fish. Mm-hmm. So that's and the my fly line story. feeds the tree. And you're, yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, that's that's why I gave up on that sport. I got too angry at. Yeah. Um, so, right. The ecosystems are important and the habitat for the fish is important. Water ties it all together. Water's the, the piece cool. that keeps it's it all together. Right. And I have some numbers on Deer Creek and Mill Creek, and it goes back to about 1992. My Our partners, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, Matt Johnson. So that's but, when it first started, first numbers and snorkeling kind of took place? No, or? we've got numbers it that go, go back further than that. Yeah, it does go back further. So is it 70s? Is that kind of when it started or... Was it even before that? You got well, some pieces, parts that go back further than that. Oh wow! The, wow. the, the first people that actually came out here, well, the Fish and Wildlife Service, back around when they built Shasta Dam, did a lot of monitoring around here. Mm-hmm. So we got numbers on Mill and Deer Creek, pretty good numbers in the fifties. Right. But then they quit coming around after they built Shasta. So there's a big gap. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> but you know, essentially, so yeah, we've got some numbers that these are probably the problem with some of these estimates too is that. They use different methodologies. Sure. Exactly. So the last, since 92, 93, the methodologies have been a, a little bit more consistent. So you can compare across years yeah. a little bit better. Okay. But, we, you know, there were, yeah. there were a lot bigger numbers back and, in the 50s. And so just in the last 25 years, and you really have to say just in the last 25 years, because we don't, yeah, there's a lot of variables with the information prior to that. But mm-hmm. in snorkel surveys on Deer Creek, it's been, you know, around 150 fish to up to around 3,000 fish, roughly. And, we're, and, we're and it's cyclical. Salmon. These are spring Chinook salmon, the one that we're most interested in protecting their habitat because they're considered a threatened species. And they only live in a few places. Remember all those X's on that map mm-hmm. of California? Mm-hmm. Right. So they they live on right, in only a few places, so we need to protect them. Yeah. And they're, they're really neat because they, they swim up and then they hold in the deep pools for months. For months. Yeah. And they, but they swim up during the high flows of springtime Mm -hmm. and we're hoping that they held over and stayed at cool enough temperatures all summer that they were able to spawn and be viable for this next year's fish so if you're ever swimming in any of the local creeks here around the chico area and you see them don't don't bother them look at them and enjoy them from far away don't bother them they only have so much body fat it, that body fat needs to hold them through a long holding period till the, the fall. Yeah, they're very fragile. Just look at them and smile at them, <laughs> and um, <laughs> don't go pestering them. Well, I think that's important for anglers too, on just catching like a baby chinook or a you know baby salmon, and knowing the differences between what a trout yeah. is and what a salmon is, and how to handle them. Right? I mean, the, um, I'll never forget going uh, going on a fishing trip with a friend of mine, and he was adamant about wetting your hands. You know, mm-hmm. getting your hands wet before you handled the fish. It was his asset. You know, he, he made a living off 
these fish and mm-hmm. guiding people and introducing them to and them. debarb your hooks. <laughs> yeah, and going yeah, barbless. That's why we call the podcast the Barbless Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, and aren't people taking pictures now of fish that kind of hold the fish underwater? And that's a big issue a right now too. Yeah. People are talking about that, and I'm I'm victim of it too. I mean, I will pull fish out of the water to get a good neat yeah. photo for Instagram. But yeah, making sure that fish is wet and dripping with water, and then yeah. putting it right back real quick. You know, right. I mean, it's that's the best way. Yeah. To I, so I, I, it's kind of, you know, I, I understand if from a conservation perspective that short term, well, long term, that yeah, keep them under the water and everything. But there's also this piece of um, PR, public relations, where if you have people on social media and they're actually posing with fish and putting the fish, fish in a nice photo, it's actually going it, to, I feel like it's actually breeding more empathy for the fish, therefore creating hopefully more conservationists. That's how I feel about it. So, right. you know, we do what we can to, to take care of them, you know. And, and release them as humanely as possible. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I know it still hurts them and it isn't yeah. comfortable. I'm sure, you know, if I was snatched out of the, off the planet, off the face of the, the earth by something coming in a big fist <laughs> coming through the clouds and got a, you know, picture in space and then put back on the ground, I'd probably feel kind of weird. Yeah. And well, we were talking kids fishing events earlier before we started. And, yeah. and uh, one I did recently where, where I, I had a little, um, swimming pool with water and aquatic insects in it and even then working with the little kids we were saying well let's keep them underwater you know let, let's yeah. be nice to these insects because they need to you know it's, it's good to be kind to a lot of the critters out there because they feed each other it's right. all back to the predator prey cycle that we were talking about earlier so deer Creek's going to be under a, a close watch for the next couple of years with that with its new like. fish ladder in going in, just seeing if they're going to make it up. And a lot of that's just all dependent on water and how much, what the flows are yeah, like. like have you guys um, set any metrics for success? Like what are, what are your target goals for, for returns and things like that? That's a hard thing to set targets on because on Spring Chinook, there's uh, not a harvest for can, them. Can I try to take yeah, that a go bit? for that. Yeah. yeah, there's all kinds of different metrics for population numbers. A lot of it depends on whether there's a, a strong fishery need for it. Mm-hmm. But from a conservation, genetic conservation standpoint and persistence of the species, there seems to be a number coming up consistently, and it's 1,500 to 2,000 fish mm-hmm. um, to, to maintain a good genetic diversity so they can persist over time. But like on carrying, top, Like a carrying capacity. A carrying river. capacity. But on top of that, then it depends on are there fisheries? On it, you need more fish to so fishermen can you know have their ability to catch their fish, and so it depends on the the species and its um, and its uh, capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, Mill and Deer Creek, you know, I, I'd say they they're looking at getting a couple thousand fish back every year is is kind of what is a good self sustaining population. They don't get hit hard in the ocean fishery, interestingly enough. And then um, mm. there's not a real big fishery for them now. They used to, I know Butte Creek, they used to fish for them. Right. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to mention that. Yeah. And if the numbers were high enough, they were talking about reopening yeah. it back up again. Yeah. yeah. So just, so Tricia, um, what are the latest counts on Deer Creek? It, now that we know it, we need to be somewhere between 1,500 to 2,000 got, fish. You have good fo- GoPro footage of it. I saw it on your Instagram. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to talk about that, but I don't want to talk about that on the air. I don't think. We want to leave those those fish alone. But, um. So last year, when when CDFW organized the snorkel, the annual snorkel survey, our crew of 
our crew, about 20 of us were out there and we try to cover all, I think it's 22 miles total. We try to cover that day. It's a long day. Holy we're smoke, each 22 trying, miles? You well, we each, crazy. each crew of two or three people does a section. Okay, you get beats and then... Yeah. yeah, but you know, two two miles is still a, a long day. Even even to fish that, it's it's a lot. It's a long it's day. Long. It's a lot of work. It's also beautiful, but can you draw me a map of where all the big trout you saw were yeah, exactly. in, in every hole Absolutely and on the way not. down? <laughs> <laughs> I, was pr- I know where they're at. <laughs> I'm proud to report that we looked. The three of us on my crew looked really carefully in every nook and cranny, and we were happy that we saw one fish. Because we knew it was going to be a low a low fish count here after a couple salmon, of years right? of drought. These are spring chinook salmon, okay. and I knew from I knew that well. Overall, the total that day was two hundred and nineteen fish, awesome. which is for a drought year. Yeah, I think good. And yeah, that was, but that you was know, just we, this, this I, past I want year. to caution mm-hmm. you on not. We we try as fish biologists not to look at one point in time so much as look at mm-hmm. a decade or sure. two decades or two and a half decades because they're cyclic and it depends on what happens in the ocean and how much food there is out in the ocean mm-hmm. for the fish and if the fish can get upstream. Remember, last winter was rocking big water mm-hmm. and that was fantastic. So we hope that a lot of spring chinook got upstream during that those high early the spring runoffs early wet flows. Yeah, and now we hope mm. that those fish were able to spawn successfully and we can, because that's really the limiting factor. And you know what's happening and right now? The the fry have hatched and they're kind of working their way downriver, right? I mean, right now, right? Isn't that? For spring run in Mill and Deer Creek, it's probably a little early. Is it still early? It, they get up there in that cold water and the incubation takes a fair, a little bit longer time period. Mm. Uh, colder the water, the longer it takes for them to incubate. Okay. I think they they start coming out in February okay. or March. They're not like the fall chinook uh, that come up a lot sooner. Oh, yeah, yeah. But in the yeah. in Millendeer creeks, they're up there in that colder water, so it takes them a little while longer. So um, I assume you guys are taking temperature when you're doing that twenty mile stretch as you as you work up. Uh, let's see. Matt Johnson with CDFW takes temperatures frequently throughout the different reaches and. It w- it felt like it was pretty warm. You know, it's August. Yeah. Remember how hot? Remember those? Oh, yeah. What was it? it we was had a hundred really days yeah. of it being Blazing. really yeah. hot. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was a little it was a little nip and tuck. But we didn't Did. we didn't see any any pre spawn mortality. That oh, that's, that's like the most that's the biggest way to get a fish biologist extremely depressed is seeing yeah. pre spawn mortality on threatened fish. We we I do want to make sure to say that at the waterfall where we built the new fish ladder. On Lower Deer. At Lower Deer Creek Falls. We were most, we knew, based on monitoring observations, that some years fish get above that waterfall. The Deer and Creek Falls, I've seen one. right? Yeah. You're talking about Deer and Creek Falls? Yeah. Lower Deer Creek Falls. Lower Deer Creek Falls. Right, the, and, and then that's and, where the... And last year that was one of them, which yeah. is kind of like a little right. frustrating because we were building a new fish ladder and we weren't able to get it finished in time and the darn fish... Like you say, the fish will fool you. Um, the darn, <laughs> they find them, a way. Huh? Still got up, a, but yeah, we knew. I, I saw we one also know that, that <laughs> scared the hell out of me. That they um, get upstream above that waterfall during high water years, yes. not during low water years. Right. And there's a there's a chart here in some of the of the data reports, the monitoring reports that shows right some in 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 low 
high water years, high water during the spring migration period of the adult fish. The, if there's high water, they can get upstream of the waterfall. But during low water years, we still want to give them a chance yeah, to get upstream. So that's why we built the fish ladder. Got it. Okay. Which yeah. is below those falls or at it? At Lower Deer Creek Falls. Lower Deer Creek Falls. I can it's just below right falls. and above, so we can get right. around there. Right, right, right. They right. get around a big, did huge guys, boulder. Did you guys, um, did the ladder go um, through that existing hole that was on the, the left? tunnel. River left, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it, it went, goes through that existing... But you guys that, had that to dig tun- down because the yeah. gradient was wrong or something. The, and, the tunnel is considered a cultural resource because it was built during the 1940s as all the permitting, proje- a permitting process on this project. Mm-hmm. We have to be very sensitive to any cultural resources, Native American cultural resources, or even things built in the 1940s. So we mm. we worked within those permits. We worked within the plant permits, and every we were very cautious to be do everything as well as we could within the regulatory process and, and use that tunnel and excavate it a little bit by Below, hand. Yeah. Boy, the crew who did that by hand, they talk about working hard. Oh, my God. They did a great job. Um, Right, to, to just change the gradient a little bit yeah. to help that work And better. did you get to drive the spider walker that was down there? No. <laughs> the, that thing looked only fun. The I had people no idea those things could do what they do. Yeah, Crazy. spider excavators, mm-hmm. that's worth a whole YouTube video. There's some oh out there. Oh, my God. They They're really go neat. vertical. Mm-hmm. Up, uh, they can go up a canyon wall. And we were They're able crazy. to use that spider yes. excavator to access a place that's in a roadless mm-hmm. area. You can only access that location using mules, which we did by foot carrying things in, which we did. And when I say we, myself and the, and yeah. the contractors, wow. and, and using a helicopter, PJ's helicopters. I'm, uh, I'm surprised that they're still planting fish in Deer Creek with an, an, being up an anadromous stream. Uh, this is up above Upper Deer Creek Falls is where you're talking about yeah. right now. And that's the California Department of Fish and Wildlife Trout Program. It, yeah, it, I, let, let me take this one because it, it had been a, a, a little bit of an issue with um, some of the agencies about the potential effects of those those planters. Right. Um, inner species. Or, uh, yeah. Inter- you're just bringing in potential whatever. diseases yeah. or bacteria it, it, or whatever. It, 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 you should probably, yeah, you should probably double check everything with CDFW, but they're putting fish in there that are not uh, sexually mature. They're triploids. They're right. triploids up there, right. so they're not going inter- to interact with them. Um, and they've also done enough s- studies where most of the fish are staying up above those falls, the, the upper falls, mm-hmm. and not really mm-hmm. getting down into the area. But they're still kind of studying that. Right. So there's a potential that they could uh, reduce that planting above there if it yeah. looks like it's having a significant effect on those on the rearing spring run Chinook down there. Mm-hmm. But it had been a, a little bit of controversy sure. with the different agencies about the potential effect. And, and so from a biologist's perspective, it's not good. Planters just aren't really good for the stream ecology. Is that well? They're accurate? competing. It's com- it's competition uh, for food, and in some of these watersheds, there's a, a pretty good competition mm-hmm. uh, for limited food sources. So it's mainly competition. It's good because you have people coming in there and catching some fish and getting to take them home and you know cook mm-hmm. them, and instead of doing something like, like to the native, you know, ruining the native population. I, I guess that's a positive. Yeah, my my concern is that people are going below the upper upper falls and taking fish which sure. is it's wild just like we see Man, wild, like wild steelhead stream. being 
bonked on the Feather River. You know, yeah. it's it's going to happen. Yeah. Poaching. I don't think there's enough signage. And yeah. it goes back to what you said. If we're out there fishing and out there, in, yeah. you know, educating the public or just being being a steward you, of the land, somebody, we're going to see that. You, and, and you, you slice know. their tires. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, I grew edit up, that one out. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. No, we'll leave it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I grew up reading a lot of Field and Stream magazines because my dad subscribed to it, and I feel like there's a sportsmanship ethic. Sure. That a lot of good anglers go by and good hunters go by Mm -hmm. and as part of that ethic we know the right things to do we know to read the regulations we know to learn about the species of ducks flying overhead or fish swimming in the stream Mm and and the waterfowl industry has has done a lot that we could learn from and are learning from and in terms of there's duck stamps I like what you're saying right yeah. there's duck stamps yep. and there's a lot of duck hunters because of duck stamps and duck habitat and there's a lot of interest in protecting the species that we like to angle for mm-hmm. or hunt for and, and and along those lines i hope that by encouraging people to fish to fish and enjoy fish whether you do it like i do which is usually underwater with a mask on <laughs> yeah. or on the other end of your fishing line and you're still encouraging that that getting outside and enjoying our wildlife, and by enjoying them, you're protecting them because you buy those darn expensive fishing licenses, <laughs> but you know that the funds from that are going to help protect habitat, mm-hmm. and so that's a that's a good thing. It comes right full circle, back full yeah. circle. Yeah. Right. So Trisha, are there any other projects going on on? below Lower Deer Creek or above that we should be aware of, either going on or on the books to go happen at some point in the future? Yeah, on the near horizon, we should be getting funding and working for fixing the irrigation diversions at Deer Creek Irrigation District and Stanford Vina Ranch Irrigation Company. Those are both within a few miles of the town of Vina mm-hmm. on okay. Highway 99. So there are a lot of farmers in that area that are... Yeah. Pulling and this water is fish screen stuff specifically. Fish screens and fish ladders to get over okay. those diversion dams. Okay. And 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 we have willing partners, so we're excited to move forward well, that's good news. with them mm-hmm. right right now. Is that the same on Mill Creek too? Are those partners? Right. In Mill Creek we've had a um, good partnership with Los Molinos Mutual Water Company there on Mill Creek and mm-hmm. um, we built a new fish ladder and screen at, at Ward Dam and then there's an there's another site a few miles upstream that um, we're trying to work to get some funding to do to do some improvements there to make a better fish ladder and a, a better um, passage for juvenile fish migrating downstream. That's great. Very yeah. cool. That gets back to kind of your priorities list. Fish, There's still a fish ladder and fish do get through there, but it's starting to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of looking at some of these other ones that are, are our higher priority right now. Okay. Well, it's interesting because those two, those two rivers definitely, um, aside from salmon, have a lot of steelhead that go up in them and, and use those that area to spawn and um i I, as an angler have seen a a decline in the number of fish in the sacramento river and and a lot of people it's a big topic right now a lot of people are blaming it on predation stripers um obviously i and i've been saying death of a thousand cuts with the low flows warm waters it's just been a hard time for those fish to for survival what you obviously know a lot about this predation and these fish have cohabitated since the early 1900s, stripers and salmon and steelhead, and then all of a sudden it's just like to now that that they're the problem and we need to get rid of the stripers, get the stripers out of there for these fish to survive. What do you, well, how do you feel about that? My experience with predation, that was one of the first jobs I had to look at was at Red Bluff Diversion Dam, mm-hmm. where we had studies by releasing fish above and below the dam 
juvenile fish that we were seeing up to 50% of those fish were being lost at Red Bluff Diversion Dam. Just right there at the dam there. Right there at the dam. <laughs> and so It's like a meat grinder. Well, you know, we weren't really sure what, you know, because there's water being diverted. It could have been poor fish screens. It could yeah. have been uh, physical injuries as they go by the dam. Mm-hmm. So we studied each of the ways that those fish could get through the dam or by the dam. And what we found, there was very, very little mortality associated with physical injury. There was very, you know, once they got fish greens fixed, we figured out that they, you know, that they weren't going down, down the canal and into the mm-hmm. farmer's fields. Um, and, and so that kind of left us with some of the uh, predation. And I, I brought you a video showing you back, and this is back in the, the 80s, showing tremendous numbers of pike minnow. Right, sitting below the dam, just waiting for anything to come by, and so it, it, when the fish would come under the diversion dam, they get thrown out of their normal natural uh, mechanisms of reducing predation. They get thrown up to the top of the water, and pike minnow would be looking from down below and just <laughs> easy pickings. And, and, so it's like getting and, rolled by a big wave if yeah. you're a surfer or something. Pike minnow are really interesting. They're not a real effective um, predator. It takes them two or three times to get it. And they're not really effective. I watched this a lot of times. But when you're in that kind of situation, and there and there were tens of thousands of fish at certain times a year when the a lot of the fall run were moving downstream, and particularly right around when we were releasing some of our fish from Coleman. So it was a really big problem at what we're calling hot spots. That was a really big problem for predation. We we went down there. You also see us pulling some some of the pike minnow out to, to do stomach samples and we'd find 20, 30, you know, uh, juvenile fish in there. Um, but we'd also find, we also tried to do some control mechanisms. You know, you, you just, you look out there, ah, oh, these are easy to catch. Well, you go out there and catch them and in about 20 minutes you couldn't catch anymore because they tended to, uh, these particular uh, species have pheromones. And it was a fright mechanism. So you'd be dragging some up, and, and and all of a sudden yeah, they I would they that. would they would spread this Whoa. out, and, and nothing. You know, you just quit catching fish. It, it, okay, now my next question <laughs> is 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 this specific to pike minnows that do this, or do trout do this too? Because you'll you'll be like you'll hammer like three trout in a row out of a hole, and then all and it would be a very productive hole, and then just shut off. I don't think it's as prevalent with the salmonids, okay. but it with this particular pike minnow. It is, and with that particular, I think it's the the genus they produce this. We also put <laughs> traps in the top of the ladders at Red Red Bluff, and you know you just be having tons of fish going in there, tons of fish going in, there. and then twenty minutes later they quit going in the trap, and mm-hmm. then they start building up below the dam, and all of a sudden you got more fish getting eaten. They actually had fish outs below the dam too. Well, are you familiar with Columbia River? They've got a bounty on those pike yeah, minnows, and, and, and people are making a hundred thousand dollars a year catching they, those things. They are. Tr- Trish is clapping <laughs> off, <laughs> off mic. It, it, it's a little <laughs> so different I, situation. I think so she they, likes that idea. They actually had fish outs there. And same same situation is that you get in there and catch a bunch of fish for a short period of time, and then you didn't catch them anymore. Um, they also had some of those. Fishermen get up too close to the dam with their boat. They got caught in the back boil and had to they had to rescue them off the oh, back wow. of the dam. Yeah. So that that after the second year of that 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 stopped <laughs> because that's where the fish are. They're right up against that dam because okay. that's where the best eating is for pike minnow. And you, you brought up striped bass. We we did a lot of electrofishing around there, you know, and I did some hook and line sampling around there uh, mm-hmm. for some content sampling. And we really didn't see many striped bass up there until May or June. Uh, when they would come up on their um, 
up on their uh, migratory spawning runs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, um, but there were striped bass in there over the summer, um, particularly. Um, but those fish didn't get above Red Bluff. That, that pretty much blocked them. They don't use fish ladders. So when that was um, operating up in, in, in 2012, they pulled it out all year round. Mm-hmm. So I think some of the striped bass you're seeing above Red Bluff were fish that were residents well they might be residents interesting Uh, i think there could be some residents going on now i don't know how much of that in in the in the redding area is going on we don't have a lot of good data on that well there's a couple anglers that have seen some big striper hanging out at the mouth of certain creeks up there yeah in redding and um please catch them and bring (laughs) them home and cook them so trisha you're saying bonk them if you catch them yeah. My personal opinion, yes, yeah. yes. But but predation is really interesting in that um, you know it, it you have to look at it on a population basis because uh, there's a, a lot of things you know if you take off one predator that some other predator is going to come along. Like I said, pike minnow can do really well on these fish, but they have to be in the right conditions. And the fish have a mechanism to to avoid that. Mm-hmm. The schools, if you have the right habitat, they can you know avoid that stuff. It's when you start getting down in the, in the, especially in the lower river where they don't have a place to hide, mm-hmm. um, that they have trouble. We're recognizing that we've had to modify some of our our, uh, our hatchery practices. Red Bluff Diversion Dam is a really good example. Until they fixed that, we were tucking half of the fish below mm-hmm. and, and dropping them in. So I got a question for you. You guys sure. have obviously identified these hot spots where these these fish these predators hang out. You know, choke points essentially, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you did talk about these pheromones that the pike minnows put off that just shuts down the fishing. Did you guys ever talk about maybe, I don't even know if this is feasible scientifically or not, but basically synthesizing that pheromone and putting them at those choke points, kind of like, you know, you put a, you put a air freshener in your wall and it squirts out, you know, every, every hour it squirts (laughs) out a little scent, but essentially the same thing, same concept. Uh, I haven't heard anybody about Turn synth- that bite off. synthesizing it, but I think some of the more creative biologists down there would grind up a few. Yeah, I was just and, about to <laughs> say that too. And, and try to do that. Well, um, those big stripers that our friends have caught, they find pike minnow in their gut, you know, and I know they eat, they do eat the sam- hatchery salmon and, or and they eat trout. And they eat trout, right? They love trout. They big fish like this is going to tend to probably take a, a larger fish because they don't have to Just work the as protein. hard. Right. Take the protein. bass home and put them in your refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the predation issue is and, and because a lot of it is what do you do about it? How do you deal with it? Up in the Columbia River, what they were trying to protect on those fish were larger uh, spring-run Chinook salmon coming down the Columbia River. And they were trying to protect them based on their studies. They were looking at pike minnow up there also. And so they needed, it wasn't necessarily reducing the numbers of pike minnow. It was reducing the average size of the adult. Because a pike minnow can only eat fish up to a certain size. They can't eat a big one. Mm -hmm. And so they were trying to reduce the the average size so it got below that's called a rule of thumb Mm -hmm. that they have for, I think it's, about uh, a fish that's anything bigger than a third of your length for pike minnow, they're not very good, good predator. They're not very uh, it's efficient. It's you say that. I caught a pike minnow out of Big Chico Creek when I was a kid, and it was probably 22 inches. It was a big pike minnow. Mm-hmm. And it, inside its gut, we kids cut it open. There was what looked like about a 7-inch, 6-inch trout. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, I've seen them at Red Bluff too. Big I mean, trout and it's good. If, if they have enough ability, if if they get them down into a narrower area, they don't they can't get away. Yeah. But in a more of a natural situation, they tend to you know they, they can get away and and the, mm-hmm. they're not going to chase them around. But that's kind of that's a rule of thumb. You're going right. to always find something else right. that, that's right. going to be different. Yeah. But yeah. So it, it, they they looked at it a very scientific, strategic point, and they're doing this bounty, and that's worked out apparently well for them. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Um, I was also involved with a couple of fish outs uh, at uh, Red Bluff Diversion Dam in the Redding area, and um, or the uh, Red Bluff area because they thought they you know get the fishermen out, get them to catch fish. You know we'll have a a, a tag, a reward tag, mm-hmm. and even, you know bring a lot of people in. Uh, it was done by the Chamber of Commerce. They they felt like they could maybe gain some money to pay for mm-hmm. everything. Same thing, fishermen would go out there and they'd catch fish for a little bit, right, and then they'd stop catching them. And some people, you know, if you're targeting a good fisherman and you know how to do it, you can target in on them. But the general fisherman, uh, you know, who's not used to fishing for pike minnow, you got to, they're, they're, they're top level predators in the Sacramento River system besides striped bass now. Right. But they didn't get that way because they're, they're, they're stupid. Why not just electroshock them and net, get them out of there? Same thing. Uh, you'll see that on one of my, uh, uh, one of my videos is that they start exerting that pheromone and pretty much can't do it they 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 so tend crazy. to because they, they they tend to scatter mm. we actually put some traps in also below the dam baited them didn't do it they're they're pretty you know they they wouldn't come in holy smoke because they're, they're 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 this fright fright mechanism and so the best you know the, what they're doing up in the columbia is the best thing they could find was doing you know the this bounty. the bounty and they've also had some commercial fishing in some of the hot spot areas below the dams that they tried Hmm. But again, they're not, it's not, it's about getting the average size of the fish down. So it's a little different down here. You know, bounties, you know, might work. Some of the regulation changes might work. They've all been thrown out there if you're trying to reduce your populations. But there's un, unintended consequences with that, some some of that stuff, because, and we don't know a lot about that. Um, and the, 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 the emphasis now is try to reduce hot spots where you know you have big population mm-hmm. and you can, you know, adjust the whatever's going on there to make it a little easier for the fish to get by and are, i mean are the the main properties or attributes of a hot spot that that is detrimental to the the fish you're trying to protect is it really about just their ability to evade predation where they don't have enough space essentially space or um they've also found them around um some of the uh, diversions where they get necked down uh, GCID is a, a good example where they can get necked down into a small area. It sort of filters them into a small area. Um, and then they, they can get um, mm-hmm. where they, it just reduces the amount of space that they have to avoid it. Mm-hmm. And especially if they get, you know, churned up in an in area. Um, and uh, so that it does tend to, they're, they're, it's, it's trying to reduce that predator prey, uh, give it a little bit more chance for the, predator, the prey to get away from the predator in a more natural situation. But it's tricky. It's tricky because at these irrigation diversions, when I put a screen in to protect the juvenile fish from being diverted down the irrigation ditch, that means the juvenile fish are then in a pipe that's about 18 inches diameter, and it takes Mm -hmm. the the juvenile fish and the water back to the creek. And I can't can't let the pipe end right at the edge of the creek because at some years when the water level's low, I don't want the fish to end up 
on the dry land. Mm -hmm. But if I put the pipe out far enough that's in the center of the creek, so it's in the fast flowing water, then that pipe is also in a precarious situation where winter high flows and logs are going to knock it down and break it. And so we tried to compromise and sometimes we have a extension pipe stored up on the bank cabled to a tree but that takes a lot of manpower to carry that mm-hmm. pipe down the hillside and bolt it back on with these big bolts to extend that pipe to try to protect the juvenile fish so hmm. it's trick it's hard i hard love to catching these fish. striper and steelhead those are my two favorite things to chase and uh <laughs> i've always i've I always thought that um, I want to catch, and even the salmon are steelhead. I want to catch those fish that get past all that, get past all those big stripers, get out into the ocean, and come back. Right? Those are the ones. Those are the genetics that we want to keep keep going, and and all that. Um, just trying to lost my train of thought of where I was going with this, but um, so those big those big striper. Um, I don't know. They've been here for a long time. I don't think there is as much impact on the the fishing as we think but more of the little ones that are all around. And I think they should lower that slot limit mm. to, you know, 12 inches or whatever it is. And those are the best ones to eat. The big ones taste like mud, you know, they, kinda, mm, they, just, don't, <laughs> they just don't taste very good. And that's why you see a lot of people releasing the bigger ones and, and you know, and but, keeping. But there's animals. Aren't, don't farm animals eat fish? Can't you feed those stripers <laughs> yeah. to your pig or something? Yeah. I've yeah. got a French bulldog that would take her down the striper. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they actually, the other thing they tried to do was develop some kind of commercial fishery for pike minnow, but some of that takes, you have to be able to effectively catch them. Right. And with this pheromone thing, you know, you go out there and fish for them for a while, then you have to wait around for another couple hours. That blew my mind. I had no idea that that, they did that. Probably better with like a bait net of some sort, you know, or something Dynamite. Yeah, we tried electrofishing and we, you know, looking at thousands of fish, you you get one, two passes and they're gone. It just it, dissipate. It just dissipate real fast. So crazy. Yeah, they're they're a lot smarter than than we give them credit for sometimes. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. So what do you guys? What do you think the future of the fishery holds with the ten years of drought we just experienced, and hopefully more water on the way? I'll go first. I'm an optimist. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I, I've nice. the the fish are really resilient. I've seen them come, like uh, winter run chinook salmon, a couple hundred. We're coming back seventeen thousand. Conditions are right, and as long as we have, I think, uh, uh, people that are concerned about them, mm-hmm. I think they'll they'll survive. I think fall chinook will survive for a long time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hatcheries have been have been good about keeping them going in this state. They haven't worked so well as some of the other places, but we've got a pretty good strong uh, fall chinook uh, hatchery, hatchery program. program. Yeah, and there's a lot of concern about the natural populations, and so I think they're going to be around for a while spring run especially in terms of the and i think we'll be able to maintain a a population of spring run but we got to get this fish passage so they can get up in these upper warm warm water up into the colder water in the upper part of the watersheds Mm -hmm. um and i think i'm optimistic i've seen really terrible numbers in my career here like we're seeing now what they were able to bounce back well, it seems to me that farmers, the people, our public, bio- scientists, biologists, anglers, everybody's on the same page right now, and they want they want these fish around, and, and I feel like they're working together more than they have in, ever before in our history to make it happen. So. Yeah, I think um, one thing that you pointed out was the economic common ground and trying to find that as kind of the bridge. I think who, people that can figure that out 
and if there's people listening and, and you may be on the younger side and you're thinking about a career, if you can figure out how to bridge that gap using some sort of an economic motivator, that's, I think that's the golden ticket, you know, yeah. it's the challenge. I think about the wine in Sonoma County that has a sticker on it that says it's salmon friendly wine. Oh, cool. It's yeah, grown in a way sweet. that's still, that they still protect the stream for the fish. Do you know fish. what wine that is? No, but I should I should go do we'll sample size. <laughs> you know, we should go on a field trip. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to find out. I had no idea that was happening. That would be kind of cool to talk to them too. And in terms That's of what, an example of what I'm saying, that just yeah. trying to find economic common ground. You know, They're using it as a marketing tool, but the end result is. Our, our office drinks coffee. It's, for a long time, it was called the Sacramento River Blend. It was shade-grown, organically produced coffee. You know, we can all take small steps to make try yeah. to make things better. In terms of which fish will, will last, outlast, you know, we human beings are, are throwing a lot of balls, or as you were saying, that ni- what was that saying about stabbing them with a knife? Death, Death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. yeah, there's more people in California, more demand for water. More people swimming, but but those spring chinook salmon—they're special. They're they athletic, really and they can get high in the watershed when those flows are high. Steelhead are athletic too, but spring chinook salmon—they're just so special because then they do just what I would like to do: hang out in a big deep pool all <laughs> summer long, stay underwater, nice and quiet, and just hang out all summer long. So how could you go That's wrong cool. with that? That's awesome. Well, thank you guys very much for coming in and, Learned a and, lot. and talking with thank us. You. Please come back. I want to—we want to hear about what transpires here in the future with you guys, and maybe come back in and we'll talk some water politics with some farmers or something yeah sure, so real so. quick <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah we'll get some farmers in here i i, um, I think I'll like, i'd like to watch you fly fishing in the riparian area and see how often you get tangled in the riparian <laughs> you just i just you just need a good lesson we'll take you out there you go i'll teach you how to roll cast you'll never catch another tree <laughs> we'll be <laughs> yeah in my experience never trust a fisherman they always exaggerate. Exactly. so before we cut you guys loose how can people find you online oh what are we www.fws just do red bluff fish and wildlife office google us up google you'll find it. us uh, our website's not as uh, fancy as as yours um when <laughs> yeah. we're trying to fix yeah. it but you yeah. can find it a- he'll help you we can you can find a lot of our studies there a lot of our work that we've yeah. we've done right. over a lot of reports a lot of reports right cool we're well, transparent we'll, we'll, uh, we'll google it for the listeners and put it on the show notes as well as all the um I think the props you brought in, Trisha, they look pretty awesome. So hopefully we got digital copies of that stuff we can get up online for you guys. And, and I'll promote that video I gave you too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, I, I thought I saw you looking at I've it. Got it I, I've got it copied here. We'll yeah. put it on the show notes as well. Okay. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you guys for coming thank in. You. You're welcome. Thank you. This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, Fish Bio and Amp.Build. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Build. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp 
develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.build.